Hello, NEPHEW community. My name is Kelly Reed, and I'm a senior medical science liaison with Otsuka Pharmaceuticals. Today, we are going to be discussing quality metrics in dialysis centers, and more specifically, focusing on behavioral health. We're gonna discuss what the quality metrics are, why they're important, and the best practices and challenges and solutions. And joining me today for our podcast episode, we have Hannah Graves, a licensed master social worker in the state of Georgia and the director of tra transplant outreach at Apex Health Innovations. She has extensive experience working as a social worker in both the dialysis and transplant settings. I am thrilled to welcome her here today to discuss her experiences navigating quality metrics and sharing her best practices. Welcome, Hannah. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to talk with you today. Thank you. So before we get started, I'll just do a brief little background um, about the quality metrics and the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. So they launched this program um, in 2012, the ESRD Quality Incentive Program, to improve care for people dependent on dialysis and to promote high quality services in the renal dialysis facilities. CMS public re publicly reports the facility ESRD quality incentive program scores and payment adjust adjustments on the Medicare.gov website. When renal dialysis facilities do not meet or exceed certain performance standards on these applicable measures, they receive reduced payments. Reporting metrics publicly and using them to determine payment for services can have both intended and unintended consequences. Additionally, it's also important to consider the role of the patient and their choice and patient reported outcomes when measuring quality. What aspects of quality are most important to patients? So let's get started and, and dive in. Hannah, um, can you tell me a little bit about what the quality metrics are specifically within the behavioral health realm in the dialysis centers? Absolutely. I'm really excited that you are talking about this topic because particularly what we are looking at, and I speak of we as the social workers in the dialysis community, are the clinical depression screening and follow-up reporting measures. Um, and what those are is that we know in the chronic the ill population, depression and anxiety are much higher compared to non-chronically ill members of the population. So knowing that information, Medicare has found it important to do screenings to help these patients achieve the best quality of life while on dialysis. Thank you. Um, and how are they measured within the dialysis setting? Absolutely, a really great question. So looking at a patient, for an example, who just starts dialysis and they're within their first 30 days of being on dialysis. And if you think about what's just happened to that patient, whether they were aware that they had kidney disease or not, it's a very 
huge life altering event to became become aware that you have a chronic condition, a life threatening condition, and that you are dependent on this treatment option dialysis to maintain your life. It's a lot to take in. So within the first 30 days, the social worker in the dialysis facility, hopefully within the first week, will meet with the patient, provide an introduction, education on the treatment option that they are currently experiencing, and then perform um, a, a depression screener. More often than not, this is part of a greater measurement tool called the Kidney Disease Quality of Life, or KDQOL. And two of these questions talk about depression, which is called the PHQ-2, which is the Patient Health Questionnaire. And these two questions are asking the person taking the assessment to look back on their life over just the past two weeks. So we're looking at a very isolated period of time of this person's life, asking them to assess how little they are interested or they have pleasure in doing the things that they traditionally would find joy in. And then they're asked to rank how they feel um, on a scale of one to three, where they feel little interest or pleasure, either not at all, several days of the week, of those two weeks, more than half of the time or nearly every day. And another question that's asked is feeling down, depressed, or hopeless. And once again, is that every day or is that once in a while? And then based on the score, where this particular health assessment is a score of three or greater would indicate the need for further testing with the likelihood of have of these depressive symptoms possibly leading to a diagnosis of depression. One of the ways that I have found that have been the most successful in examining this information is to try to make this more of a conversation, getting to know the patient, the things that they enjoy, what they're struggling most with this transition. As a lot of people I have met remark that they were never sick a day in their life before starting dialysis. So working these questions in kind of nonchalantly so that it doesn't sound like you're completing a government form. They would also, this initial patient would also be assessed again, 90 days after starting their treatment, their dialysis treatment that is, and then they would be reviewed annually. It is the discretion of the social worker to assess more often if needed, if there's a change in um, living situation or medical status. It's, it's a tool that's available to social workers. But really why it's the most important in that first 30 to 90 days is, as we discussed, the huge turmoil that is in this patient's life, having to have to start this life-saving treatment option, but also there's so much going on medically within the patient that we have actually found high rates of mortality in those first 30 to 90 days. And the idea is from the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid that as we are focusing more on this particular timeline, we're helping patients get a foundation under them so that they can be successful moving forward in their treatment. Thank you. So, so what I heard you say, if I can just recap for a, for a minute or two and make a comment, is that it's critical within that, that first either 30 days, but within that week to really get a baseline of where that patient is both physically and mentally, because there's a lot going on when they're coming into dialysis. And what I also heard you say was that um, 
because that was what I was thinking. I was like, are patients open to filling this out? Is it a form that you're going to hand to them? But it sounds like maybe you're helping to, to kind of work that into conversation so it doesn't seem, you know, abnormal or strange that, you know, these, these, they're having to answer these questions. It's that, that everybody does it, but that you're sort of disarming the pa patient by working that into conversation. And then they're maybe more willing to open up about things that are going on in their life. Very good synopsis. Yes, absolutely. And as I'm speaking, I do want to give the caveat that this is my personal professional experience that I have found has worked best. Many of my other colleagues who are very adept at their positions do provide a form, allow the person to do the form or not do the form and complete it as they see fit. But really the kind of the spirit that I've kind of developed in my own kind of workflow and the way that things are done is that people relate to each other more conversational. We are a social species after all. We do uh, want to connect as a basic underlying evolutionary function of survival. And so in that spirit of connectedness, I do try to be more conversational and relate back to things that we have in common like family. And we will both obviously live in the area if we're both attending the clinic and what, you know, what about that brings us together more so than what divides us apart with me being the professional and them being the patient. So there's not that perceived power mismatch in our relationship. Wow. It sounds like a great best practice. Um, but as you mentioned, there's many ways to do it, right? So I guess whatever right. kind of works best for whoever's administering that. Um, so speaking of who is administering that, um, I know your, your background is social work. Um, is it typically the social worker that is administering the forms or the questions or doing that initial sort of baseline um, behavioral health assessment, or can that vary in, in clinics? That's a really great question. And one of the really powerful pieces for the social work profession is that Medicare has mandated that not only a social worker, but a master's trained social worker be in the dialysis setting. It's a requirement of the dialysis setting to be able to open their doors to treatment that they have on staff, a, a social worker who has a master's background. Um, and so that would be that particular professional's main focus is to deliver the depression screening, discuss behavioral health treatment options, um, just because that is where their training is in. And I do want to kind of make a distinction, particularly here in Georgia, where I uh, live and work, is that we have um, two different forms of um, licensure in the state for professionals in the social work um, realm. One is a, a licensed master social worker, LMSW, which that's what I am, and a licensed clinical social worker, LCSW, um, which is a distinct different licensure type, which allows that particular professional holding that LCSW licensure to be able to not only treat those diagnosed with mental health disorders, but also to be able to diagnose, um, give inferences and information on treatment plans, work with other members of a mental health team, such as a psychiatrist or a psychologist, to infer on a medication regimen. Um, so it's a little bit more of a clinical, you do have different requirements in terms of um, the clinical social work would have to have 3,000 hours of supervised experience under a clinical social worker, take another exam, um, and then can continue to keep their license up to date with state policy. So it's a, it's a little bit different, but it um, 
both functions in the dialysis setting the same, but I just wanted to kind of give a shout out to those with the LCSW licensure because they have to work a little bit harder, do a little bit more work under supervision and take another exam. Um, so they work very hard for that licensure. And thanks to them, we have a lot of options in order to be to um, refer patients out for treatment, they can receive um, counseling under an LCSW, and then the LCSW is able to be reimbursed by Medicare. So it's another great option for patients to have access to mental health that may be unable to access a psychologist or a psychiatrist due to insurance or cost issues, and oftentimes um, licensed clinical social workers are right in the community available to patients. So just wanted to make that distinction, but yes, Yes. Long answer to your short question. The social work professional is the one responsible for administering the clinical depression screenings in the dialysis center. That's great. And thank you for sharing that distinction, because that kind of leads into the next question and sort of, you know, what happens, you know, next? If so, if a patient does screen positive for depression, you know, what are those next steps? Um, and kind of along with that, you know, are they able to receive counseling in the dialysis center um, or are they referred out? And I guess, you know, I'll kind of leave it at that and let you kind of speak to that and your experience within the clinic. Absolutely. That's a great segue into the next point. Um, as a as a social worker, I'm very much a proponent for mental health counseling. I kind of think we all should have some sort of counseling due to just the the rigmarole of our day-to-day -day lives and the the kind of the PTSD we can all incite by simply watching the television or picking up the newspaper. It's a very, um, in my humble opinion, a stressful time. And that's not even considering someone who has a chronic medical illness that they kind of feel like they're walking this tightrope because their kidneys have completely stopped working. And then if you stop and think about that too long, it's very shocking that a whole system of your organ in your body is just gone and you're still here alive. But, you know, at any time, if you step left or step right too far and mess with your diet or your medications or whatnot, that you could be hospitalized and very ill. So it's a very scary time. Um, and so that's kind of part of the role of the social worker and why the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid thought it was so important to have a social worker available in the clinic um, for the patient is to be able to kind of be that point of contact and then know when they are kind of outside of that ability. Because in an in-center dialysis center, I don't know if anyone has been to a dialysis clinic and seen the treatment floor where patients are administered their hemodialysis, but it's a big room and there's multiple people. There could be up to 20 to 30 people sitting, you know, four feet apart receiving dialysis. So it's not a private setting. And, you know, despite us saying, oh, I don't care who knows my business, you kind of do care that, you know, you're talking about your mental health in a large room with no privacy. So that really is a, a context that I take very seriously into consideration when talking with patients is being thoughtful of their privacy, whether they, you know, quote unquote care or don't care, it's their privacy and they have the right to it. And so that's kind of where I know where my boundaries are, where I am happy to meet and talk perhaps after a treatment in the privacy of a closed door office session. But I also understand that when patients are done with dialysis, they want to get out of there and go home and don't want to spend more time there talking with me. So that 
this would be conversations where I would have about the opportunity to refer to another provider in the community, um, helping them make that contact. Really, the, the constraints also are the community that the patient happens to live in. Is this a rural area or are we more in an urban setting where there might be more providers available? And oftentimes, if not all the time, these patients who are on dialysis have Medicare insurance. And so if they have a Medicare Advantage plan, that poses a challenge because a lot of times Medicare Advantage time, the Advantage plans that we've worked with have limited reimbursement rates to providers. So not that it's all about the money, but you do want to make sure that the professionals engaging in counseling care with your patients are being compensated for their time. Um, and oftentimes that's the challenge to find the provider who will take the patient's insurance plan if they know for a fact that that insurance provider doesn't reimburse or doesn't reimburse well. And that's a, a moving target. And we like to, we are seeing some positive strides in uh, Medicare Advantage plans making progress to reimbursing providers better. Um, but that really is a challenge if you can get a patient to, a, to agree to going to counseling. So many of us are very proud, very private people. We don't want to think that we're crazy. That's always the question I get. Do you think I'm crazy? No, I don't think you're crazy. I think you're a human being going through a very challenging time. And I think you're reacting very appropriately but I also think there are resources out there that can help you manage this. And I'd like to see you connected so that this isn't such an arduous time for you. And so kind of spelling that out has particularly helped the consideration of I'll think about it and perhaps moving to that particular decision. But there's a lot of things that are kind of barriers and insurance and, and patient willingness to participate. Um, because if you think about it, that's another appointment, right? And they already mm -hmm. have, if they're going to in-center dialysis, that's three a week that they're participating in. So it's a lot to ask of a patient to participate in counseling. But we are very fortunate in the year 2023 to have a telemental health option where patients can talk just like this with their counselor, either through a Zoom um, platform, video call, or through the telephone. So there are really great options out there. So, wow. So, yeah. So it sounds like some of the challenges with that, you know, once, the, you know, they are, are deemed to, you know, to be uh, positive for depression is that, you know, offering, you know, services within the center can be challenging because it's not necessarily private. And while some people might be okay with that, others might not. Um, insurance is an issue. I feel like insurance is an issue for so many things. Um, and then, as you mentioned, the patient willingness, right? Because that's yet another appointment. And with a chronic illness, they have already so many patients and uh, or appointments and things that they have to take care of to add something else in could present a real challenge for them. Um, and so kind of along those lines, you know, with the insurance piece and willingness, um, you know, if they can't afford the counseling or aren't, you know, willing to go, are there options for them um, that they can, they can partake in or, or where does that kind of leave you know, either the center, the social worker, and the patient, like what's, um, what's available to them? That's a really great question. I feel like if we can answer that, we might be under a million dollar <laughs> idea right there, because that is a, 
uh, very challenging, but there is always the opportunity for the social worker and the dialysis facility to be a source of support for the patient. Either, you know, they may not be licensed clinically, um, but they still are able to offer that empathic listening and encouragement and support, um, as well as um, I also utilize kind of the care plan meeting, pulling in the patient's family if they're so willing to include them. So we kind of sit down and have a talk about what this person is experiencing because sometimes family, we're just too close to them and we don't want to burden them and we don't want to trouble them. But then the family doesn't understand, you know, why are you so tired all the time? Why are you so grumpy? Why don't you want to do anything? And so kind of having just a sit down with your family to explain, you know, this is the course of treatment. This is probably why you're seeing this experience. And just having those conversations can really lessen the, the burden of these depressive symptoms. And even um, we are so fortunate to live in a time of support groups, online message boards for patients to kind of share experiences across the world. It's amazing. Um, so it all is not lost um, if you are an unwilling participant or perhaps don't have the insurance coverage or the money to pay for a copay for a counseling session. Um, there's a lot of really great tools out there um, for patients to plug into that doesn't have to necessarily be a one-on-one -on -one counseling session. Yeah, it sounds like there are some great options. And you also, I re recall you did mention the tele-mental health option, which we know, you know, coming through COVID that we can do things virtually and it can, and it can work. It can be challenging, but it can work. Um, so I know you've walked this walk. You've talked this talk. You were in the centers. You were doing these assessments. You were working with these patients. Uh, and you were achieving these benchmarks and and, and hitting those quality metrics um, and those scores. And can you tell us a little bit about maybe, um, you, you know, some of those best practices that you had within that center and things that you implemented that, that made it work? Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for, for that. I'm not necessarily due credit, but I can't say enough the power of a of a supportive team. Um, there is no I in team, right? Um, <laughs> and so the dialysis setting um, itself is not meant to be a one-person shop. There are um, the social worker, the dietitian, the nephrologist, um, the clinic manager, the facility administrator, the administrative assistant, um, the nurse, the dialysis technician. It's sincerely a village. And when all of those particular professions kind of come together, each bringing their own expertise and knowledge. It's just, it's a wonderful experience for the professional feeling engaged, plugged in and doing good, as well as the patient, because you see that they're feeling better, they're meeting their lab values, and there's less complaints of symptoms such as inability to sleep, loss of appetite, depressive symptoms, um, when you're feeling well mentally and physically, you're just well um, as a person. And that goes both for professional and um, the patient that's under consideration. And so I can't say enough about the importance of having a supportive team. And also, uh, we all start somewhere. We're all green and brand new and new at one point in our profession. None of us come with all the answers right away. And I can't speak enough to how fortunate I was to have a mentor who taught me 
all the ins and outs of, of uh, dialysis social work and what it what this meant, what this really meant. And then don't worry about this. What this is saying is X, Y, and Z. And so having someone break this down because in our preparation for our call today and reviewing these uh, metrics, it's like, this doesn't even seem like English. How am I supposed to implement this? And I'd like to think I went to school for a long time to be able to critically analyze words to understand what they mean and then implement them. Um, but it's very challenging. And so having a mentor who's been there before and done that and been able to be a phone call away or there on site to help you is just, I cannot stress enough. I personally see it as the greatest corner of my success would be having someone to show me the way. I think that's an excellent point because I think, you know, mentorship that's critical in so many aspects of life in all professions. Uh, I don't think a lot of us would be here today without having, you know, great mentors um, that are out there. And I'm sure we could all name, name, name one person that's had such an impact on our life. Um, so that's a great point. And then of course the team, right? Cause as you mentioned, Again, in all things, having a great team and working together towards, you know, a common outcome is is very important. And to, to be able to have that, not everybody has that. And there are teams where, you know, it's you may have a member that's not great or one that's super great or everybody's all pulling their weight. And I think it really does take that um, to to have good outcomes. And I think again that comes, you know, leading from the top down too. I uh, um, you know, from if you have a good medical director that's kind of out there and uh, advocating for you and for your team and putting it all together, uh, it's going to have good patient outcomes. And that's, that's what we want. Um, so I know we've talked a lot about what metrics are, you know, why they're important, you know, how they're measured, who's doing the measuring, and, you know, all the next steps. Um, and we've talked about some of the challenges, but what would you consider to be the top two challenges within this setting in terms of the quality metrics? That is a really good question. And in kind of thinking about our conversation here today, I was thinking, what am I going to say that doesn't sound um, <laughs> like a pity party for myself or a woe is me? But um, there are so many com competing demands for your time and attention. And as you know, always the most critical fire, you know, is given the most attention. And oftentimes you feel like you're always falling short on the things that need your attention because you're always responding to the crises. So that's really always been my kind of response to challenges is like, I'm, I'm, I can do one thing at a time. I know the coin term is multitasking and sure I can do more than one thing at once, but it certainly isn't done to the the level that I would like it to be done. So the competing demands and then so much being a brand new social worker, um, fresh out of school, or even if you've worked in the field for many years, but are new to the dialysis community, it really is its world of, of itself and getting your feet under you and feeling like you know what you're doing and being confident and even just getting used to the medical setting of dialysis. I mean, when you think about the logistics of a dialysis machine, I mean, these poor people have these huge needles in their arm and their blood is being pulled out of their body into a machine and, and they're just sitting there like they're on an airplane flight and it seems you know we've we've normalized that so that that's not you know the big deal which is wonderful that we can have treatment options just kind of be you know non-painful and um, able to be done in the middle of the day and so people can go on with their lives but for someone who's brand new to the profession there's a lot of opportunities for being lost in the shuffle and then I'm 
unfortunately turnover because we didn't well train those professionals to feel like a, a valued member of the team. So competing priorities and getting through that initial shock of, of the dialysis world, because it really is a very humbling place to be for a patient um, to either have feelings of guilt and remorse over past decisions over their health that may have contributed to them leading there, or perhaps having just a, a chronic condition that they were born with that resulted in that. Whatever the case may be, it's a very, it's a hard mental journey more so than um, physical. If I had to pick one would being harder than the other, but they just, those two things of, of starting new is always a challenge. And so um, those were the top two that kind of came to my mind. Yeah, I know those are great. I think, yeah, it, you know, competing demands, I think, you know, especially in today's environment, especially if you're working from home too, there can be all kinds of competing demands and really trying to figure out how to prioritize prioritize everything and um, put it together. And then of course, when you're new, all those competing demands seem super overwhelming. Um, so with that, uh, in, in, you know, given your vast experience in this, in the setting and, and, and different settings within, you know, social work, the transplant and whatnot, what, um, what do you think might be possible solutions to address, you know, either of these challenges or both of these challenges? And, um, for, you know, the future generation or the current generation that's maybe struggling with some of these challenges? Great questions. Absolutely. <laughs> Once again, if we could figure that out, I think we <laughs> some million dollar ideas, but obviously, you know, we, we did think about this presentation today and talking about this and having that opportunity and kind of reflecting back on things that have worked and maybe not worked is that mm -hmm. um, I have just been surrounded by wonderful professionals, colleagues of mine who are willing and able to share best practices that they found with the caveat that this may or may not work in your community. Um, but one of the social workers who I have the great honor of working with um, did a, a lunch and learn with her team with her group of nurses and dialysis technicians, dietitian, um, the clinic manager, the administrative assistant, and put on a little presentation over the lunch hour. Um, and when I implemented this practice, I um, made a little lunch. And, and so that sweetened the pot a little bit <laughs> to come and attend and eat some lunch. And I went through the role of the social worker. Here's what I can do. Here's what I can't do. I can't fix everything. I can't make things that are broken, not broken, um, but I can help and I can mobilize resources. And, you know, please feel welcome to come to me if you're not sure. Um, but one of the things that I ask is that we get to know each other and our roles so that I understand what you're capable of completing and what you're not and what kind of timeline you're going to need to do things in. And I think that just this professional mutual respect so that you're not just coming to me with a problem and expecting me to fix it when I can't. That lunch and learn sounds like a great idea. And I mean, who doesn't love to come together when there's food involved in particularly? And I think that's great. You can, you know, kind of share, you know, what you can do, what you can't do, as you mentioned, um, because I'm sure as a behavioral health professional, there's a, everyone does think that, you know, you can fix it all and maybe even their own personal problems, which, you know, that's probably a podcast for another time. But I think you also mentioned mentorship. And I think that's, that's key too, because I think maybe, you know, encouraging, uh, especially those new social workers to seek out those mentors. Maybe it's, you know, 
uh, back at school or in professional societies to sort of see if they have any advice and great ideas for them or what's worked, what's not worked. And as you mentioned, you know, this may work in your setting or may not, but here's something that you could try. I think that's all good advice and all good solutions here. So on that, Hannah, is there anything else that you wanted to add regarding this particular topic or any advice, you know, final comments before we wrap it up? Absolutely. Well, I think I thank you so much for summarizing that so succinctly and really speak to the need of not trying to be an island and pull it all on your own. Um, really want to kind of um, highlight the relationship between the social worker and the dietitian. Oftentimes, those two kind of are the ones that um, are with each other in an office setting, like close quarters, computer to computer. Um, and oftentimes that camaraderie is very helpful. For example, the dietitian I had the great pleasure to work with was able to connect with patients who maybe pretended to be asleep whenever I came around. <laughs> Um, so she was able to kind of keep her finger on the pulse if there ever was concerns that I could follow up with without being um, overly dominant if they didn't want to talk. Um, so that relationship is really important. And I, I failed to mention before, and I meant to, um, how important the medical director in supporting your efforts is. The medical director of the clinic sets the entire tone um, for expectations, what is allowed and what is not allowed in terms of um, behaviors, whether to staff from patients, but also um, from patients to staff. So really want to speak to the importance of a community setting. The dialysis setting is a very small community, and so it's really important to get that right. So yes, you spoke to mentorship, definitely, and um, self-care, definitely, when you're in a healthcare setting, is to, to take good care of yourself. Absolutely, because I think it's hard to take care of others when you're not whole. So I think that's a great point because we know even through the pandemic that the that the healthcare professionals themselves suffered greatly, and and everybody needed to to kind of take a moment and 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 figure out what self care was for them and and take the time to do that. So on that note. Um, I want to thank you so much for joining us today, Hannah, and thank our nephew community um, on this, you know, listening in and joining us for this topic on quality metrics, uh, specifically behavioral health quality metrics within the dialysis center. And if you enjoyed today's content and today's podcast, you know, please feel free to check out our podcast channel available on Spotify, Google, and Apple. And thank you. Thank you.